show of hands, how many of you would say you're intuitive? Yeah. Uh, um, there are people who just know or, or sense what other people are feeling. Uh, and some people think they can, but they really can't. But uh, there are people that just pick up on vibes uh, and they know um, when somebody's got their feelings hurt or when somebody's mad or when somebody's pulling away. Uh, you sort of see a, a pattern and, and you pick up on that. Maybe it's in your work environment. Like when you go to work, you know when some, uh, there, there's, there's a feeling in the air that something's wrong today. Uh, maybe it's in your family or with your friend group or just at the mall, random people. You just kind of sense when something's going on with people. Uh, Jesus obviously had this ability, uh, and he was able to tell when, when things were going on in people's hearts and minds, both people who disagreed with him, uh, as well as his closest followers, probably most of all his closest followers. He could read when, when something was a little off in their life that he needed to correct, and in, in Matthew's gospel, we run into one of those times. We're going to be in Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament. If you want to follow along in, in your Bible, we're going to start in Matthew 18 in just a few minutes. But in, in Matthew 18, Jesus starts getting this sense based on the way his disciples are, are acting and the things that they're saying and the questions that they're asking Jesus begins to sense, all right, there, there are some issues here that I need to address, and that's what happens. After you sense it for a while, you know, okay, we got to talk about this. When it's with your kids, it's, it's a bad attitude maybe, and, and a bad attitude for one day then turns into a bad attitude for three years, and you know, all right, we got to talk about this. this. This is driving me crazy. We can't keep going like that. that that's kind of what's happening uh, with Jesus and the disciples. Now, the story we're going to study is actually in Matthew chapter 20, but I want to get there real quickly through Matthew 18 and 19. I'll, I'll promise to be fast, but just kind of follow along with me. This is Matthew 18 verse 1. This is what's happening. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Parents, you know what it's like, teachers maybe, aunts, uncles, grandparents. You know what it's like for your kid to ask a question and you know the issue is bigger than that question? Like, there's something that made them ask that question. They come home from school and they ask a question, and your first thought is, where did they get that? Like, what conversation happened at school? What happened at their friend's house to prompt that question? Because they've never had that question before. Jesus knows this about his disciples. Who's the greatest that's not the problem. The problem is whatever prompted that question. So Jesus, rather than answer the question directly, he gives an illustration. He, he, he gives a, a, a visual aid to help them understand. This is what happens in verse 2, chapter 18. So he, Jesus, so he called a little child to him and placed a child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children... You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Again, not directly answering the question, 
but saying your ideas of great and not great are mixed up. So let me begin to show you that it's the person who takes the lowly position, which children would have had the lowest position on the social ladder at that time. And Jesus says it's the person in the lowest position. If you care for these people, then you're great. That's how greatness works in the kingdom. And, and then he goes on to talk about how you should care for those in lowly position. You should watch over them. You better not make them stumble. You better not offend them. You, you shouldn't harm them in any way. So he gives this whole lecture about how the greatest in the kingdom, they care for those at the lowest end of the social ladder. And, and you think, okay, we've answered the question. But then in verse 21, Peter asked another question. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And in just reading it, you don't pick up on the self-congratulatory nature of Peter's question. But Peter is really giving basically a humble brag. You know, humble brags when you kind of slip in something about yourself that's, that's meant to, to show how sincere you are, but really you're just kind of patting yourself on the back. That's what Peter's doing. This, the, the rabbis of the day had written that you should forgive someone up to three times. After three times, you don't have to forgive them anymore because it's their fault. Like, that's on them. You've done plenty if you forgive them three times. And here's Peter saying, hey, look, I would forgive seven times. I don't know about the rabbis, I don't know about everybody else, but Jesus, I am willing to forgive seven whole times. This was this magnanimous, humble brag that Jesus gives to Jesus. First question, who's the greatest? Second question, because Peter thinks Jesus got the first question wrong. Right? Peter thinks Jesus misspoke the first time, so Peter says... Somebody in our group would be willing to forgive seven times, Jesus. Are you sure somebody's not the greatest? Are you sure there's not a number one among all of our group? This is what's going on in the heart of Jesus' closest followers. So Jesus then tells a story, which we're not going to study, but it's a story all about forgiveness and how many times you should forgive and gratitude and humility, hoping that this kind of gets through to his followers. But then notice what happens in chapter 19, verse 13. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Didn't we just have that conversation in chapter 18 about caring for and looking out for the lowest on the social ladder? And we're, we're just right after that. And the disciples are keeping children from getting to Jesus. And Jesus just said, these are the most important to me, parents, you know how this is. When your children keep asking the same question over and over again, you know you're not getting through to them. Like they asked it on Monday and you answered it. 
and they ask you to get the exact same question on Wednesday. Anybody been there, parents? Exact same question on Wednesday because I think you got it wrong on Monday. And then you got it wrong on Wednesday, so they ask you again on Thursday to see if your answer has changed. This is what, this is what Jesus is dealing with with his disciples. They just keep asking the same thing, and he keeps trying to help them understand, and they're not understanding. So following that moment, <clears throat> Jesus has an encounter with a rich person. And the rich person wants to know, what do I have to do to gain eternal life? And they have some back and forth and a little bit of conversation. And, and finally, Jesus says, look, here's, here's your problem. What you need to do is you need to go sell all your possessions and give it to the poor and then come follow me. And the rich guy goes away because he doesn't want to do that. He, does, he, he doesn't want to sell all of his possessions. And in the aftermath of that story, Matthew 19, 27, Peter answered Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Uh, Jesus, this guy's a bum. Like, he wouldn't follow. We actually have all been following you. Are we going to get a prize for that? Like, what, what is the prize that we're going to get because we did what you said? We have been following you for a year or more now, Jesus. We've been walking around with you. We're sold out for you, so... Where do we rank in this whole system, Jesus? Now, Jesus, basically, this is my paraphrase, but basically his response is, guys, everybody's going to get taken care of in the kingdom of God. It's going to be okay. Nobody's going to be disappointed in the end. Nobody's going to feel like they lived for God and then they got disappointed at the end of that. That is never going to happen. Could you just take a deep breath? Because everything is going to be fine. And he ends that conversation with this phrase. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And so Jesus is kind of like a parent at this point. I've gone over and over this again with you. You're not getting it. And here was the problem. <clears throat> What's happening in the hearts of the disciples is, is what happens in a lot of our hearts. There, there is this rivalry. There is this competitiveness. There is this, this draw towards comparison. Tell me I'm important. Tell me I matter. Tell me what I'm doing is better than what everybody else is doing. So Jesus is trying to communicate to them. Look, the scales are different in the kingdom of heaven. The balance is different when it comes to the things of God than the way it is on earth. And you've got to understand there's a whole different system of weighing out important and unimportant in the kingdom of God. Because in the kingdom of God, there isn't this rivalry. There isn't this, who's the best? Who's the greatest? That doesn't work in the kingdom. And from there, he segues into the story that I want to talk about. Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. Well, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day, which was a day's wages, a denarius for the day, 
and sent them into his vineyard. So here's the setting. It's harvest time. The grapes are ready to be harvested. And if you had a large vineyard, you wanted to harvest them as quickly as possible. Because you didn't want any of them to get overripe. You didn't want any of them falling to the ground. You didn't want to take a chance that a storm was going to come through and destroy part of your harvest. So when the grapes were ready to be harvested, you wanted to get in there and get them harvested as quickly as possible. So you would hire seasonal workers. You didn't need them all year. But harvest time, because there's lots of work that needs to be done really fast, you would hire day laborers, and day laborers were available. You just go into town, you find where they're all congregating, you hire as many of them as you want, you take them back to your farm, and you let them work for the day, and then you pay them a day's worth of work. That's what's happening in the story. It goes on. About nine in the morning, started at six, First trip into town was six, hired some laborers. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. That was their only deal. Just just his word, I'm going to treat you fairly. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. Easy to understand. Hired a group at six in the morning, hired another group at nine, another group at 12, another group at three, and another group one hour before quitting time. Five o'clock, we're knocking off at six o'clock. He hires them all throughout the day, puts them to work in his vineyard, and then gets ready to pay them. Verse eight, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those who... Those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. This is obviously not a story about how to pay your employees. If you pay your employees this way, you won't have any employees for very long. Jesus is not instructing business owners what to do with their money. That's not his point. This is not economic theory. This is not how to run a business. Jesus is not concerned with that issue. There is a bigger issue that Jesus is trying to focus on. The story is about your motivation. The story is about the heart. The point of the story is not how how much somebody gets paid. Versus what somebody else gets paid. 
The point of the story of the vineyard is about motivation. Why do you do the things you do? And what do you think about them after you've done them? Jesus was always driving toward the heart. He was always driving towards motivation. He was much more concerned with internal motivation than external production. He wasn't trying to evaluate, did you do more or less? He was trying to evaluate what's going on in your heart versus somebody else's heart. Now, no doubt, the tension of the story registered in the heart's of the disciples, because it registers in our hearts, just from a practical perspective, just from an everyday human perspective, the story's not fair, right? Most of us, we put ourselves in the position of the guy that was hired at six in the morning, worked all day, and got the same amount of money as the person that worked one hour, and we want to say, this is not fair, sorry, not fair, that's not just, that's not right, We feel that tension. If you've been one of the disciples, you would have felt that tension. You would have said, that's not not how you treat people. That's, That's not the right thing to do. Most of us put ourselves in line with the person that was hired at six. Now, I, I know some of us are sitting there thinking, dude, i got to give me that one-hour job, right? There's like a few of you thinking, man, one hour, all-day work, all-day pay. If I had been there and the owner showed up the next day, I'd hide, right? I would hide until the last hour, and then I'd say, hey, pick me. And some of you are like that. Most of us are thinking, well, I'd be pretty ticked off if I was that first guy. I, I, I'd be upset if that was me. Um, for some time now, though, Jesus has been noticing in the heart of his disciples, closest followers, he's noticed that they've continually asked Jesus to stroke their ego. There's been this consistent plea for, tell me I'm wonderful. Tell me I'm awesome. Tell me I'm great. Right? This was before Instagram and people were still doing this. Please tell me I'm wonderful. Jesus has noticed this constant appeal for affirmation. Tell me I'm the best. Tell me I'm the greatest. Jesus, if you had to line us up 1 through 12, and 1 is the best and 12 is the worst, just tell us. Just be honest. How would it go? Like, What would the order be? I think we all pretty well know who number 12 would be. But Jesus is not going to play the game. Jesus, if you had to draft us for your fantasy football team, like, what would the order be? And Jesus refuses to play this game. Jesus refuses to play the game of ego, the game of comparison, the game of who's the best and who's the greatest. You remember when you were a kid? Kids, especially younger kids, you often appeal to your parents for affirmation. Who's Who's the best? Hey, Dad. Who makes the highest splash when we jump in the pool, me or him? Right? There's this constant appeal for, watch me, watch me, look, watch me. Hey, Mom, who touches the fence? We're going to race. You tell us who touches the fence first. There's this appeal. That's what kids do, right? Kids are trying to find their place and who they are and, 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 and where they rank. That's what kids do. Jesus has grown men 
following him around saying, am I the best? Jesus, come on, I'm the best, right? I'm your favorite. Seriously, though, I'm your favorite. I'm the greatest. You know, I forgive seven times, Jesus. Nobody else said that. I said that. I'm the best. Jesus has followers constantly asking, will you tell me I'm the best? Will you stroke my ego? Will you tell me that I'm the greatest? And Jesus tells them the story. He tells them the story to say, look, look, guys. You have a good and generous father. He loves you. And he's invited you into his vineyard. He's invited you into his kingdom. He's invited you into his work. And he doesn't play comparisons. He doesn't compare this worker to that worker. So will you stop? He doesn't decide, oh, you work harder than that person. Or you've done more than that. That's not the way it works in the kingdom. You have a good father who is going to do what is right. You don't have to keep appealing for him to notice you. He's already noticed you. He's already seen you. He came to town and got you. He showed up one day and picked you out of the crowd. I want you to come be in my king. I want you to come be in my venue. He's already noticed you. You don't have to keep comparing yourself to all the other people in the kingdom. Because the owner, the father, he's already seen you. Remember being in school when it was test day? The teacher would hand out the, the test. And then they would give instructions that almost always included something like this. Do your own work. Keep your eyes on your own paper. Do your own work. Keep your eyes on your own paper. Don't be cheating. Don't be looking to the side. You do you work. You do what you know. You, you give your knowledge on this test. Let this be a representation of you. Don't start glancing to the side, marking down what they mark down. And don't start comparing. Oh, I'm on number 10. You're just on number 4. You're slow. I'm fast. Keep your eyes on your own paper. You do your work. The owner of the vineyard who picked you, loved you, he's going to do what's right. The only other vineyard said, look, come into my family, come, come, come into my vineyard, come into my kingdom, and keep your eyes on your own paper. I'm not comparing you to 50 other people. I've called you to something. I've given you gifts. I have purposes for you. And you're going to waste your life. If your whole life you're constantly saying, well, I'm doing better than they are. I'm doing better than they are. Well, I wish I could do that. Well, it... The owner says, no, you've, already, you've, you've been noticed. You're, you're loved. You're accepted. You're, you're part of the kingdom of God. Just why don't you do what you're supposed to do? You know who this is really hard for? Moment of confession. <clears throat> it's really hard for pastors, this whole idea. Because when you're a pastor... Somebody always has a bigger church than you do. Always. Some other pastor's church is always growing faster than your church is growing. Somebody else's church gets talked about more than your church does. Always. There's always some other pastor that's a better communicator than you are. As much as you try and study and practice and work on it and Read books about it. 
there's always somebody who's, who's be- just better than you are. There's always somebody whose podcast gets more listens than yours does. There are pastors who not only pastor bigger churches than yours, but they write books. Like they've published books. Five, ten, twenty, thirty books. They got bestsellers. Pictures on the flyleaf, right? For a pastor, there's always somebody who's done more. There's always somebody that's better than you are. <laughs> but the owner of the vineyard picked you and gave you a vineyard. And said, why don't you keep your eyes on your paper and do what he's called you to do? And I, and I think it's not just pastors that struggle with that. I think a lot of us struggle with well, I'm better than them. How come nobody's noticed? How, how come I haven't gotten the opportunities? I do more than that person does. Nobody realizes all the stuff that I've done. We, we all have this rivalry comparison. I want to be noticed. Hey, look at the good things I'm doing. And the owner of the vineyard is saying, I'm not even going to talk about it. I don't compare you to anybody. I've given you work to do. Why don't you just do the work I've given you to do? A couple of thoughts about this. What if it might help if we approached it in this way? What if we serve the kingdom because of the goodness in our serving? That we've just discovered that what God has given me to do is a good thing, and I'm going to do it. And I'm not going to compare myself to that person or this person or that church or, or that owner or that husband or that wife or that teacher. Or that. I, I'm not going to get into that game. There is, a good, there is a joy in just doing what God's called me to do and the way He's gifted me and the way He's asked me to serve. There is a joy in that, and I don't have to keep looking left and right. I made a mistake today. I looked at social media before the first service. And I shouldn't have done that. <clears throat> because there was, a, there was yet another, in the line of about 30 million, articles <clears throat> that somebody had posted um, critical of church. Critical of some specific, quite subjective things about church. It wasn't any of you, so it's not anybody that goes to our church. Um, and, and I was thinking about this message. If, if you don't like churches with stained glass, what if you just didn't go to one? What if you went to another one? If you don't like churches that... that, that uh, that uh, give out coffee. Don't don't go to one. Don't go to go to another one. If you don't like churches that has that have choirs and choir robes, well, don't go to that one. Go to another one. If you don't like churches that have a band, well, don't go to one that has a band. Go to go to another one. But but maybe cool down the need once you find where God wants you. Just calm the need to talk about how everybody else is doing it wrong. Just keep your eyes on your paper. 
Like, where has he put you? Where has he called you? What does he ask you to do? Why don't you find joy there instead of having to say, well, everybody else is doing it wrong, and this is how you do it right? Next suggestion. What if we served humbly for the season that God has put us in the vineyard? Like, whatever God wants to do, like, th- this is where he's put me, and, and I want to honor him, and I want to be faithful, and, and I want to be a person of integrity, and gen- I want to find joy just humbly do- doing what I'm doing. If God gives somebody else a bigger platform, what does it matter? If somebody doing the exact same thing you're doing gets recognized in some great, what does it matter? Why not just humbly do the work he's given you to do? And maybe you'll get recognized, and maybe you won't. Maybe somebody else who's not as talented as you gets really famous, and you don't. The owner doesn't care about that. The owner is saying, look, why don't you just find joy in the vineyard? What if, what if my satisfaction with serving in the vineyard was fueled by my gratitude that the owner would choose me? I just, I serve out of the goodness of serving. I serve humbly wherever the owner wants to put me. And I serve with a heart of gratitude because he picked me. Like the God of the vineyard came to town one day and said, I want you in my kingdom. I want you. Come on. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to always do what's right. You're not going to get to the end of your life and regret following me. Just come on. I want you. And and maybe instead of trying to size up who's the greatest and who's best and who's doing it perfectly, I would just be so grateful that God invited me into his work that I, I would just serve with a heart of gratitude every day of my life. Here's the question I think that um I think that some of us need to ask ourselves. <clears throat> and it's just a basic question. What has God given me to do? What's God given me to do? Not how does it compare to what he's given somebody else to do. Not how does it compare to the really famous people. What's God given me to do and and how can I just go do that? How, How can I keep my eyes on my own paper and stop worrying about this person or that person, or trying to correct those people, or, or trying to fix that church over there that I don't even go to, or those people who do it differently than I, maybe God's using that way, that's not my vineyard, so why am I worried about it? Why, why don't I just say, God, what have you given me to do, and I just want to do that with joy, I, I want to do that with gratitude. This rivalry, this, this comparison it's so persistent in our hearts. It's so persistent. We, and we rise above it sometimes and we get pulled back. And we rise and we get pulled back. Jesus gives this whole story basically saying, stop worrying about what everybody else is doing. Whether you started at 6 or they started at 5 or they came on at 12. Would you stop worrying about what everybody else is doing? Would you just do the work you've been called to do? And then he follows that up by saying... Specifically, he's going to die. Like he's going to give his life in a little while. Next scene, Matthew 20, verse 20. 
Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, that's James and John, came to Jesus with her sons. And kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, Jesus asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. For three chapters, Jesus has been trying to address this, who's the greatest? Who's the best? He tells this whole story. Say, just calm down. Just do the work you've been given to do. And immediately after that, James and John get their mommy to go talk to Jesus. Like helicopter parenting didn't just start, right? Their mommy goes to Jesus to say, hey, like when the big thing happens, like whatever it is, like the big government thing, the kingdom, what I don't know what it is, but when that thing happens, can my little boys... Like, sit on your right and your left. Like, can they have really good positions? Right? Riding high, you, them. Like, that'd be awesome. <laughs> this thing doesn't die very easily. This I have to be better than. I have to criticize. I have to point out how everybody's doing it. It just doesn't die very easily. But Jesus is saying to all of us, just do the work you've been given to do. Just check your heart. Just keep your eyes on your paper for what God has called you to do. It is not your place to straighten everybody else out. Just do the work he's given you to do. And find joy in it. Be grateful. Live in humility. That the owner of the vineyard picked you. Let's pray. God, our hearts are difficult places sometimes. There's wars that go on. There's striving. There's appeals to our ego. God, look at me. Look what I've done. Look how much better I am. Look, our church does it so much better than that other church. We're... We're more spiritual than they are. God, give us hearts that just want to do the work you've called us to do. And we don't have to be critical of anybody else. We don't have to point fingers. and We don't have to try to get noticed. We're just glad to be in the vineyard. We're just overwhelmed at a good father who would pick us to be in the kingdom. That would say, this is what you can know. I'm going to do what's right. You're not going to get to the end of your life and regret living it for me. You're not going to wake up in heaven one day and go, man, that was a whole waste. I'm going to do what's right. That's what God said. He's going to do what's right. So free us from the need to get noticed. And let us do the work that you've given us to do. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.